You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Hey, everybody. It's good to be with you, and I'm excited about what the Lord has for us today. So if you've got a copy of your scriptures with you, I want to read to you a couple passages uh, or verses from Hebrews chapter 11. So grab a Bible if you got it. Uh, maybe grab a kid if they've been doing worship aerobics and sit them down. And I'm just excited about a moment where, you know, we're all in different contexts right now, but we're facing a similar crisis, and we have an opportunity to let the Word of God shape our thinking. So if you haven't yet, take a deep breath. Let's calm our minds and let's let the word of God speak to us from the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 11, verse 32, says this, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, Father, I pray you would help us do that right now, consider Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would clear our minds, that we could focus. You would open our hearts so that it could beat in rhythm with yours. And Father, I pray that you would help us now know what it is to live well in these days. So fix our eyes on you. Help us think about you and help us be different. I pray, God, that as a result of these few minutes in your word, faith would rise around the world today. Hope would rise. And I can't produce that, but you can. And I want to invite all of you, if you're willing, take a minute and ask him. Say, Lord, please teach us right now. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my senior year in college, my sister wanted me to run a marathon with her. Uh, I was not particularly excited about the idea, but I loved her, so I consented to it. And she had a coach that trained us, and the coach gave us this amazing 
life hack to stay hydrated. Uh, you know, when you run a marathon, you have to keep drinking as you keep running. But to try to drink out of a cup while you're running can throw off your rhythm, slow you down. So her coach told us, cut up little straws and carry them with you. So that when you grab those little cups, you can scoop them up. You can drink at your leisure and never break stride. And I want to tell you, it worked fantastic. So when the day of the marathon came, we were crushing it. In a particularly sadistic move, they had made mile 13, the halfway point, an overpass, and we destroyed it, went charging up it. By the end, people were asking if they could run alongside us, thanking us for inspiring them, cheering us on, and we're like, no, thank you. It's not us. It's him. I mean, it is us, well, through us, but you know. And anyway, so we're just running, but amidst all the adulation, I dropped my straws. But man, we were maybe mile 20 and I thought, well, I'm just gonna gut it out. I'm just gonna keep going. But I remember when we hit mile 24, uh, I started to feel lightheaded and body felt heavy, weirdly cold. But right about that time, my sister had gotten the runner's high, you know, where all your chemicals conspire to make you extraordinarily happy. And so she starts saying stuff like, Ben, do you know how much God loves us right now? Like she's getting all spiritual. And I remember at one point she said, Ben, God's carrying us. Do you feel it? He's carrying us right now. And I don't remember if I said it out loud, but I remember thinking, he might be carrying you, but I think he just dropped me. And then I collapsed. And I did not fall forward. I had no momentum. I just sort of folded in on myself. But it happened to be near an aid station. So they scooped me up and they took me to the side. And I was able to finish the marathon, but not before I had to pause to rehydrate. And as I did that, I had to learn a tough lesson. See, I had taken a sprint mentality when I needed a marathon mentality. See, in an endurance race, you have to fuel to go forward. You don't just rely on strength. You need strategy. It's not about toughness. It's about tactics. To do an endurance race, you have to keep fueling to go forward. Enthusiasm is not enough. What we need is endurance. And why do I tell you this? Because I don't know about you, but for me, the last few days, I think a lot of us have been in that sprint mentality. Like when this whole thing started, we were like, okay, two weeks and this will be over. Okay, maybe by Easter it will be over. But just recently, the president and authorities have been telling us, hey, now it's April and now May and June and into the summer. And this time of severe disruption of our life is now going to go 2x, maybe 3x, maybe 4x, longer than we thought. And for many of us, the thoughts start rising up. How am I going to make it? How am I going to handle that long isolation? Or others of us, it's not isolation. Say, how am I going to handle being locked up with these people? I mean, sure, they're my family, but this is too much. Or some of us were like, Ben, how am I going to handle this financially? How am I going to survive this? How's my business going to make it? How's my health going to withstand this? And And I'm not saying any of this to try to freak you out, but I'm just saying all the ambiguity does raise some anxiety. And what I want to do is try to shift our mentality and give us a strategy. We're being called to endure. And so what I'm hoping to do now is to give us the fuel that will keep us going forward. It's interesting, a few months ago, I felt like the Lord was calling me to study the word endurance. And I'm like, I don't know why, but now it feels kind of obvious. I think sometimes the Lord prepares us for a moment without letting us know what the moment is. But he led me to Hebrews because Hebrews talks all about enduring. It gives us the keys to have perspective, to persevere. And then the writer of Hebrews, when he's speaking to this crowd, he gets personal in chapter 10 and he commends them. 
He tells him in chapter 10, when you started your journey of faith, you guys got out of the blocks great. He says, remember in verse 32, he says, recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. He said, at the beginning of your life with Jesus, you endured. You were getting rejected because of your faith. Some of you were imprisoned in this time of religious persecution. Others of you were declared a menace to society because of your beliefs and they confiscated all your possessions. But you joyfully submitted to that because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, you guys did great. You started the race strong. And you almost get the sense that the Hebrews are high-fiving each other like, yeah, we did it. And he's like, yeah, you guys got endurance. That's great. And then he says, because you're going to need it. You're going to need it. It's about to get hard. And in the midst of that, he starts to give them perspective of how to persevere, the fuel to go forward. And the first thing he does in chapter 11 is he calls us to get perspective from the past. We need to get perspective from the past, inspiration from those who've gone before us. And we won't read all of chapter 11. You can do it later this week. Make it part of homeschool. You got the time. But as he starts to talk to them, he's letting them know and us know we are not the first generation to face a crisis. In fact, it's fascinating when you read the scriptures, the scriptures never sugarcoat life. Life is filled with suffering. Yes, the world is beautiful, but it is desperately sin-sick and broken. Nothing works right. And the scriptures keep telling us, in this world, you will have trouble. Through much tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom. Many generations before us have had to endure horrible trials. And yet in the midst of that, there have always been people who rose up in the day of conflict and entered in it with confidence and with compassion. Every moment where there's been conflict, heroes have risen up. It's fascinating. I had a friend tell me that in Chinese, the word crisis is, I'm going to butcher this, weiji. And he said it's the combination of two words, the word danger and the word opportunity. That every crisis is a dangerous opportunity. So we don't have to say we like a crisis. We don't have to pretend like it's good. We can pray it'll go away, but we can acknowledge every crisis carries with it an opportunity. You see this in war. War is a great amplifier that in moments like World War II, it amplified that pressure cooker. Some of the best of humanity, that crisis brought out some of the most inspirational acts of self-sacrifice and love on behalf of your brothers and sisters. But it also amplified moments of extreme selfishness and cowardice. That crisis is dangerous, but it's also an opportunity to display the best of humanity. And so here in their moment of suffering, the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to know you're not the first generation called to suffer, but in every crisis, heroes have risen up to live admirably in a difficult day. Indeed, that's what defines a hero. You can't have a hero without a crisis. But when crisis comes, heroes rise up and he begins to show them people who've gone for them that did well. He says, remember Noah? Noah was in the middle of a very evil day. And facing unforeseen circumstances no one had ever seen. And yet in holy fear, he built that ark and he saved his family. Abraham had to leave everything he knew and go to a place that was dangerous he knew nothing about. And yet he did it and he established a beachhead from which the gospel of Jesus could go forth. He said, look at Moses. Moses could have laid up, taken it easy, lived in Pharaoh's house and not worried. But he saw the injustice being perpetrated against his people and he was willing to associate with those who were mistreated at the risk of his life and he liberated a nation. Rahab could have shut the door and stayed out of it. 
but she chose to associate and save the Israelite people. That generations before us have faced moments of crisis and they've come out of it. And he's telling them, get perspective from the past. Be inspired by those who've gone before us. Let the heroes of old give birth to the hero in you. I remember I had a friend that she's got a health issue that is at times debilitating and is always calling into question her life expectancy. And I remember there was one particular day where her health was really failing and we were concerned this could be it. And she had decided to come back by the office and, and I didn't know what tone to strike with her in a somber moment. And so I kind of was trying to come in quiet, almost like a funeral vibe. And so I was shocked when she came bounding in the office, full of joy. And I was surprised and I asked her, how are you? Are you feeling better? And she said, no, actually my body's in a rough shape. These have been very difficult days. But then she said, but I've been reading this biography about a chaplain that had a brain tumor and yet he knew that life was limited so he wanted to use it to the utmost and he did all he could to relieve human suffering and help others. And she said, when I'm reading about his life, it inspires me. I may not live long, but I want to live well. And she said, so I want to use every moment to inspire doctors, nurses, whoever, to trust the God who saved me. And I'm listening to her like, you are an inspiration. You set your gaze on a hero from old and it brought out the hero in you. What's the first way we're going to endure? We get perspective from the past. We get inspiration from those who've gone before us. Yes, the world is filled with suffering, but it's also filled with overcoming it. And it's interesting. You can just see as he's doing this, the writer starts getting amped. He starts getting into it. And then by verse 32, he's like, what more can I say? He's like, I don't even have time to tell you about Gideon. You know, he beat the Midianites, even though he was vastly outnumbered. Barack, he became the first African-American president of the United States. Uh, there's Samson. Well, that's a different guy. Samson, he defeated the Philistines with his bare hands. Jephthah defeated the Amorites. David, you know David, he took out Goliath and he had to move around to get away from the stress that Saul brought into his life for over a decade. These guys did well. And you could almost hear the crowd of Hebrews getting fired up, getting amped, shouting him down. Yeah. He's like, look at him guys. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouth of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then he takes a weird turn right when they're amped. He said, and some of them were tortured. And refuse to be released. You can almost hear them going, yeah. Okay, that's, that's admirable. Much respect. That is less than ideal. Others suffered mocking and flogging. Okay. Chains and imprisonment. All right. They were stoned with rocks. Oh, okay. They were sawn in two. Um, you mean like a magician? I don't feel like you're meaning it like a magician. They were killed with the sword. You're like, oh, all right. They went around in skins of sheep. You're like, you're talking about moccasins? I don't feel like you're saying that. And they, they lived in caves. And the more he talks about this, it's kind of a bummer of a motivational speech. The further he goes, you're like, hey, I don't want to be in verse 38, like 37. How do I get upgraded to verse 33 where they were conquering kingdoms? Like, is there a, a status level? Do I got to get on a list? I don't, I don't want to be in the people who through faith we're tortured. I want to be in with the people who through faith conquered. Why are you telling us about this other group? But he goes on, he says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised. You're like, wait a minute, they went through all that and they didn't get what was promised? What are you saying, man? But then he tips his cards and gives us perspective on the next point. He says, they didn't receive what was promised because God has provided something better 
for us. He ties their stories to ours. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The writer does something interesting here. Man, we get inspired by the past, but then we need to accept something about the present. Their little stories, as inspirational as they were, they're part of a bigger story that God is telling. And these people, though their story was significant, it was not the culmination. God is writing a bigger story and he wanted to invite you and me into it. So yes, they had a role to play and yes, they will be perfected with us. They will be at the end, but they didn't get to see it all the way through. There are Obi-Wan Kenobi. He didn't get to live to see Darth Vader become a good guy and bring balance to the force. But he got to be there at the Ewok party. He's gonna make it. He'll be bluer than he thought and ghostier, but he's going to make it. He's like, same with them. They knew they were a part of God's big story. Abraham knew one of my children's going to bless the whole world. And Abraham's like, when can I meet him? God's like, no, that's not for like another couple thousand years. David knew his son would sit on the throne forever. When am I going to meet him? No, nah, man, that's like hundreds of years, but I'm writing a big story and you get to be a part of it. And he says of this earlier generation, they did not usher in the culmination because God ordained to give us an invitation to be a part of the story. They ran their race. Now it's our turn. That's what he says in verse 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. I want you to see that verb set before us that God did it. We don't get to, term, to determine the times we live in, but we do get to determine what we do with the time we're being given. God determined the race. Noah didn't get to decide, hey, I'd rather be Moses. I'd rather be David. No, you're the boat guy. Hey, you're going to be the Goliath guy. You don't get to pick your story, but you do get to decide if you're going to step in and play the game. And for us, we don't get to choose our context. They had their crisis. Now we have ours. And none of us want this one. We want it to go away quickly. It's not wrong to pray for that. And yet there's something helpful to acknowledge. There's a God over all this writing the story. And the heroes of old were rewarded for their faithfulness in the middle of a trying day. And now it's our turn. And there's a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, calling us to go forward. It's interesting that surrounded by a crowd and the race metaphor makes you think of like a Greek Olympic games, you know, that a, a roaring stadium, which you're kind of meant to, but then he changes it by saying we're surrounded by a crowd of witnesses. That word witness is the word martus, uh, martyrs. And what he's trying to show you here is the people cheering us on are not disconnected spectators eating nachos, telling us to do it. These are people who are also part of the story. Think not Harry Potter at a Quidditch match, but Harry Potter at the end. Which if you're like, Ben, why are all the movie illustrations? Am I the only one watching movies right now? Okay. But if you recall Harry Potter at the end of his life, he was in a moment where he didn't get to choose a story. Didn't get to choose that evil took out your parents. You didn't get to choose a lightning bolt on your head. You didn't get to choose that you were the chosen one. But you were put in that context. But you get to decide whether you would play the game. Whether you would be a character in the story. And there comes the moment at the end where he has to walk into that forest alone and face evil and face death. And in that moment, there's no roaring crowd around him. There's no fans, but he pulls out the stone of resurrection and he is surrounded 
By who? By his loved ones who gave their life for the same story. His parents who died so he could live. His godfather who sacrificed his life so his friends could survive. His mentor who laid his life down to save the children at the school. He was surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. And you notice they didn't tell him, hey man, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I wish it wasn't like this, though that was true. What they told him was, you can do it. You can go forward. You can accomplish it. This great story was worthy of our sacrifice and it's worthy of yours. You can do it. Go forward. We'll be with you. And that's what Hebrews is doing to us here. Abraham is saying, it's worth it. Moses is saying, press forward. They're saying, I know it's scary. We didn't have guarantees either, other than there was a God up there writing the story, but we believed him and it worked. And now it's your turn. Our time is done. Now it's your turn. And so we get perspective from the past, but we bring acceptance to the present. I accept my role in the story. I accept I can't control the situation, but I can control how I step into it. It's interesting. I listened to an interview recently with a Navy SEAL. And he was being asked about how do you manage being sent out on these missions where you don't get to control the mission? You don't get to control the situation? How do you handle that level of stress? And he said, I think of it like a bullseye with an one outer ring and then a center target. He said, the outer ring I call the circle of concern. All the elements of this scenario I'm legitimately concerned about. He said, and then I call the bullseye at the center, the circle of control. These are the things that I can exert my will on and actually make a difference. He said, and what I find is in a crisis, most people burn through their mental and emotional energy and physical energy worrying about the circle of concern, things that are scary to them, but over which they have no control. He said, the discipline I've developed is to focus all my mental and emotional and physical energy on that albeit smaller circle over which I can exert great control. And then the interviewer asked him the very natural question, what do you do with all those legitimate concerns? Like, how do you manage those? And he said, I think about them and I release them. And it wasn't a spiritual interview. I, I, I don't know if the man has anything like faith, but he was using spiritual language that I don't control the scenario, so I release it. Somebody else has marked out this race for me, but there are some areas over which I have great control. And so let us run the race marked out before us. I don't get to control the times which I've been given, but I get to control what I do with the time I've been given. And so for my part, I will run. I will lay aside every weight. I will cast off every negative and destructive way of thinking. And I want to challenge you with this. There are ways of thinking that are not positive for us. There are ways of dwelling on anxiety. We cannot stop anxiety from zooming into our minds and hearts, but we can control if we let it take up residence there. We say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to lay that aside. I'm going to take off every impediment. There are sinful ways of living that will cling to me, that they will not lead to my flourishing. There are activities that are not productive in these days, and I will cease those. 
but I will make a list of the things over which I have control and I will set my eyes on those and I will accept this role in the race I've been given because I want to run it well. It's my turn and I'm going to set aside that which is not helpful and I'm going to run the race marked out for me. That's what I'm going to do. Run with endurance the race. I love it. That word race is the word agon. It's where we get agony. I'll run with endurance, the ability to keep moving under great weight. That's what endurance means. To abide under a load, I will move through this agony. And I hope that encourages you again that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat difficulty. It's okay to cry. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be mad at God. Beat on his chest if you have to, but then fall into his arms and trust him. And then lift your head and say, what can I get out of my life that's not helpful? What can I step into that's heroic? But then it leads us to the final question is, well, Ben, all that's great, but if we're honest, getting inspiration from the past, accepting the present, that's going to get us to the starting line, but that's not going to motivate us to keep running if this goes on for months and months. Where's the actual fuel to keep moving forward? And let me tell you this, something interesting about your Bible, it doesn't often motivate us by looking back or around. The Bible almost always motivates us by calling us to look forward. And if you notice, it's been happening all through this text. Indeed, it's what the saints of old did. Abraham knew if I follow God, there's a better kingdom. And that's what made him move. Moses let go of the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he knew there was a more lasting possession and a better one. Faith is defined in Hebrews as believing God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Colossians says it's hope that springs forth faith and love. How are we going to have faith in difficult days? How are we going to love people when we're cooped up? It's hope. It's confidence in a better future. The whole New Testament leans forward. The best is ahead of me. And that drives me to keep running. And you go, well, Ben, how do we see that? Well, the final piece he gives us is we get motivation by looking to the future. And the way we do that is we fix our eyes on the ultimate hero. In verse two, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look at Jesus. This is Palm Sunday, the day Jesus made the choice to ride into Jerusalem. To ride into the capital city like that had an official name. It's called the Perusia, the arrival of a king. It would be a declaration to the religious authorities, I am the king of this nation. And as he stood on the outskirts of Jerusalem, he told his disciples, If I do this, they're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to rip my beard out. They're going to nail my body to a piece of wood and torture me in the most sadistic way possible. Then they will kill me and they will throw my lifeless body into the dirt. And I knew as he stood at the edge of that, I wonder if he thought, I don't have to do that. I mean, later in the garden, he said, Lord, if you will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He had a different will. He's like, he had some other ideas. Hey, I could settle down with Mary Magdalene. I could have some kids. I don't need this stress. But as he stood there and looked in the valley of the shadow of death, if I go in there, there's shame there. There's brutality there. 
There's agony there. I will suffer. But then he kept looking. And he saw, but if I hack my way through that wilderness, I can make it to the other side. If I drop into that cave of death, I can punch through it and make it a tunnel into eternal life. If I am a seed that drops into the dirt and dies, a harvest of sons and daughters of God could be born. If I lay down my life, many lives could rise to resurrection into the family of God. If the king falls, a new kingdom would rise and out of my death, life might come. And so he saw there is shame in front of me and shame usually keeps us from acting. But he despised that shame that will not stop me. I see a throne past the thorns. And so Jesus made a decision. I accept my moment. And he got on that donkey and he rode into Jerusalem and declared himself, I'm your king. And he called out their religious hypocrisy. And he called them to embrace the son of God. And he willfully went before the trial like a lamb before shears is silent. His composure marveled by Pilate silenced the centurion, watched him die with grace and said that had to be the son of God. No one can face suffering with that kind of endurance. And they dropped his body into the dirt and day two rolled by. But then that ground began to shake and then that stone was rolled away and the earth broke forth and the sun rose and the saints began to sing and a kingdom was born and redemption was made available. And the Son of God stepped forward. And he breathed out the Holy Spirit on his people. And he said, I'm creating a church. I'm creating a house. I'm creating a kingdom. I punched through the other side of death. And I made it to life on the other side. We watched the gears of death roll over him and crush him. And then we saw him pop out on the other side and take a seat on a throne. And from that place of victory, he now calls to us, I did it. I made it. Now it's your turn. Come on! And we look at the suffering and say, no! No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through that. And he says, you can do it. No! I can't do that. He says, and you look at me. You keep your eyes fixed on me. Because I love what this text calls him. It calls him the author and finisher of this faith. He's the author. It's the word archegos, the beginning. It's also the word trailblazer or pioneer or champion. It gives you the idea of someone seeing a great forest and pulling out a machete and hacking their way through. But then it doesn't just call him the starter. It calls him the finisher that he didn't hack midway through. And then we have to figure out the rest of our way to the suffering in life. No, he stepped into our suffering and he endured and he endured and he cut a path all the way through to the other side, to eternity, to a rest, to a throne, to a comfort, to a joy, to a hallelujah. He cut his way all the way through to the other side. And so he looks at us and says, I know you're scared. And five times we're called sons in this passage. He says, son, I know you're scared. Daughter, I know it's hard, but you just keep your eyes on me and you start walking. I blazed a trail. I already cut the wake. I made it all the way to the other side. You just walk with me. You take one step at a time, one step with me, and I will lead you safely home. And we're called to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so we may not grow weary and faint-hearted. How will we keep stepping in the suffering? How will we endure in the middle of our challenge? We fix our eyes on the hero, 
We see he made it. And if he made it, we'll make it. If he rose, we rise. And so we decide, I don't know everything around me, but I know the one before me and I will step into what he's called me. What are we supposed to do? And I, so for many of us, you're like, well, Ben, this is a great pump up speech, but we're supposed to stay at home. Are we going to get a stay home on three? Like, what do you do? Read chapter 13 later. He starts to tell you what's in your circle of control. As you step into this moment of suffering, we can let brotherly love continue. We can keep loving each other, keep calling each other, keep cheering each other on. Don't neglect to show hospitality, even to the stranger. Find ways to relieve suffering to those around you. We can let marriage be held in honor of all. We can prioritize our marriages and strengthen them. We can remember our leaders considering the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We can watch great heroes of the faith and be like them. Do not neglect doing good and sharing what you have. We can obey our leaders and submit to them. We can pray for us. It's fascinating. Every call we're given in that chapter, you can do in quarantine. There is much under our control that we say, man, there's a lot that's not, and it's okay to pray that it'll go away and to beg God that it'll end quickly and to ask him for relief. We should do that. And yet then we accept our circumstance and we rise up with compassion and confidence and say, but but today I will fix my eyes on that circle of control and I will cast off what hinders and I will run fixing my eyes on him. In the past, when pandemics have broken out, Christians have responded in different ways or people have responded in different ways, escaping into fantasy, exploiting people financially, or rising up with creative compassion. And this has been the historic Christian response. I will show compassion in a day of crisis. Let's do that. For me, when I was laid out in that marathon, laying there, my whole body hurting, my mind turned to my mentor, Chris, who the year before had finished the marathon, the year it iced over. There was snow on the ground, ice on the runners. And I started picturing Chris as I watched him turn the corner and charge towards the finish line. And I drew in my mind the image of Chris enduring, of Chris pushing through the pain, of Chris finishing well. And the more I thought about him finishing well, the less I thought about my pain. The more I thought about him enduring, the more I wanted to endure. The more I thought about that victory, the more it excited me. The more I saw that, the more I was able to step out and run. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. He knows our pain and he's made a way through it. Let's fix our eyes on him and then we'll endure and run all the way until we cross this finish line safely into his arms. If you were encouraged by today's talk, Be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.